1: Welcome to New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Michael Van of Sacramento State University. Today I'm speaking with Karen Offen about debating the woman question in the French Third Republic, 1870-1920, out with Cambridge University Press in 2018. We will also touch upon its companion book, The Woman Question in France, 1400-1870, out with Cambridge UP in 2017. Karen Offen earned her PhD at Stanford University. She is currently a historian and independent scholar affiliated as senior scholar with the Michelle C. Clayman Institute for Gender Research at Stanford. Dr. Offen publishes on the history of modern Europe, especially France and its global influence, Western thought and politics with reference to family, gender, and the relative status of women, historiography, women's history national, regional, and global histories of feminism, and comparative history and the politics of knowledge. Um, She has held fellowships from the John Simon Guggenheim Memorial Foundation Fellowship, the Rockefeller Foundation, and the National Endowment for the Humanities. Dr. Offen, Karen, if I may, welcome to New Books in History. So I'm, I'm delighted and, and really honored to have you on the podcast, um, as you're one of the most important pioneers in French women's history, and the field really is indebted to your work. Um, before we get into debating the woman question in the French Third Republic, 1870-1920, would you tell us a bit about your education and your career? Um, how did you come to be the scholar that you are? And I'm very curious to um, hear what it was like to forge this field uh, as your cohort really built um, women's history within uh, French history.
2: Well, thank you, Michael. And thank you for the big question, as well as the very nice introduction. Uh, the story is a long one about my education and career. I began my college career at the University of Idaho, uh, intending to be a chemistry s- Physics and math major. And oh, really? at a certain point, I took this course in Western Civ, which was taught by uh, Charles Le Guin, who's turned out to be the husband of Ursula Le Guin, the science writer. And he was a <laughs> yeah. fascinating teacher. And I just got so interested in the history of Western Civ. I took French uh, and German as well. And midway through the uh, four-year program, I switched my major to history, much to the annoyance of the chemistry advisor. And I've never looked back.
1: (laughs) So STEM's Um, loss is history's gain.
2: Between my junior and senior year, I was a member of a European study tour that Literally went all over Europe, not just one country, but but many, 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 and um, we touched base and all sorts of people. The theme was political geography, so we hung out with the, the Basque underground, and we went to the <clears throat> uh, meet with. Uh, professors at the Sorbonne. We went to the Krupp locomotive factory in Germany. Just to give you an example, we met Prince Otto von Habsburg, who was, you know, fostering world unity at that time and since. Uh, It was just mind-blowing. And I decided that I really needed to know much, much more about Europe. I was never particularly attracted by American history, but the European history was an amazingly fertile field just for learning, not necessarily for researching. And at the end of my senior year, I received a Fulbright to France. And so I spent my first graduate year, you might say, in France, uh, perfecting my French, uh, learning all about many, many things. This was during the Vietnam War, by the way. And uh, no, I'm sorry, the Algerian War in France. So we were out in the streets and the apartments got plastiqued a couple of times. So we began to see, you know, a lot of action, to put it that way, um, in real time. Um, Then I did a PhD at Stanford by writing about a a right-wing political personality named Paul de Castagnac, who was a monarchist, a Bonapartist, and totally in opposition to the Third Republic.
1: Right. And no, you may I, I, ask I, what reviewing in the world your C- was that about. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no. Reviewing your CV, I was, I was, I didn't know that that's where you started. I, I found that fascinating. So, what what drew you to to him?
2: It was um, Gordon Wright, who was our advisor in French history, basically gave us a list of possible dissertation topics, and his idea was that. There were so many people working on the left at that point, including many of the, the French scholars, that the space that was open was really to study the right and to follow the, the lead of René Raymond um, in investigating what was going on there. And what, first of all, Casagnac was a very intriguing figure. He was catholic he was authoritarian he was uh, a newspaper man he had his own paper publications called Le play and l'autorite during the third republic he was bitterly in opposition to the third republic and what studying him enabled me to do was to deconstruct the success narrative of the third republic that was then in in um, fashion and to show the, uh, the conflicts, the opposition, the way in which the, the, the monarchists were responding to the Republicans and vice versa. And through that exercise, I subsequently realized that that was what had allowed me subsequently to deconstruct the gender politics of the French society. But I finished my PhD before I ever started in women's history.
1: Right, right. So, so when did you make that turn? I mean, was this something that you you saw lacking in the field as you were working on your doctorate? And I I was reading
2: a lot of newspapers at the time, and there Mm -hmm. were articles about women and what they were doing. And but my lead question was, and you'd be amazed at this: uh, was there ever a women's movement in France? This, this was the period of, of real agitation in the United States and, and elsewhere in the wake of uh, 1968. And there was no literature on this, zero. So I just started sniffing around. And about that time, my husband and I had our first child. I was, did not go on the job market at that point, not because it wasn't of interest, but because there were no... Positions available. Well, As in there's, zero. There's, there
1: still aren't any jobs.
2: <laughs> <laughs> it was re- really a, a bad time, and so yeah, yeah. I opted out of that and um, job chase, and decided that there were of the three possible things I could do: teaching, research, and parenting. Like I could probably pull off two of them, but not all three at the same time. As the saying goes, you can have it all, but you can't have it all at the same time.
1: So, so what were what were your initial um, projects as you started to engage French women's history?
2: Uh, essentially, trying to find out if there was a women's movement, and I've landed on the women question. Now, the the books that we are talking about today. Um, started out as a project on the Third Republic debates on the one in question. And I just started sniffing around and, to see what was out there. And found every time I looked at something, there was more and more and more and more sources, more publications. And so I plunged in. Uh, 45 years later, I published these three, two books, which were supposed to be one book. That is itself is an interesting story because my editor at Cambridge said, we cannot publish an 1100 page book. And (laughs) And he said, so you'll have to cut it by 40%. And you know what I said? I'm not cutting. I am not cutting. You have another idea. He said, well, we could do two volumes I said, that would work perfectly. There's a the perfect break point. Even better. So then, then it got longer because I had to write an introduction to the second volume <laughs> and a conclusion to the first. But everything that I did, did finally appear in print.
1: Yeah, yeah. So um, could you give us a... a a relatively quick sketch of the historiography of women's history and gendered analysis in the field of French history. Um, And I'm wondering how has French history differed from other national histories in regard to both women's history and also integrating gender analysis?
2: Well, right now they're doing very well. But in the 1970s, when I started um, if there was any work at all being done, it was on women workers as in the union movement <clears throat> uh, and uh, Charles Sowerwein, who is an australian American Australian, did a book on women in in French socialism, which was one of the very early productions, which he also got published in in Paris <clears throat> but for a long time, nobody—excuse me—nobody there was particularly interested in the, the women question debate, since they were certainly not working on the history of feminism, that came in the later eighties. But they were—they were the Americans and the British were really the pioneers in this field.
1: So I, I find that so interesting because you know my little neck of the woods is French colonial history, which is. Also slower to develop than um, the history of the British Empire and other imperial histories. And I, I find it very interesting that in the 70s and the 80s, bo- um, that the field lagged um, the field of French history lagged behind both in terms of women's history and in critical colonial studies. Um, maybe this has something to do with the coming of the Bicentennial, the French Revolution, and the sort of the, the, the focus of so many scholars in the eighties. Um, but it's, I think it's, a, uh, um, to quote Victor Lieberman is it's a strange parallel. I think that's mm-hmm. very interesting. Yeah, um, is. You know, so that both a gendered and, uh, racial analysis of history mm-hmm. was so slow when, when French history has led in so many other fields.
2: Um, so, right. strange parallel. Right. Well, I and mean, then the niche for for the outsiders, the ausländer, as it would be uh, termed, uh, is in those niches where the French aren't working. And that was... That was the, the tip-off that Gordon Wright was able to give to, to some of us. He had students like me working on Kassignac. He had another person working on Marcel Dayat. He had a lot of people who were working on subjects in the 1940s and 50s, for example, who were on the far right. Not that Gordon Wright was right He was not right-wing, but he saw this opportunity for research there. Right, right, and you know it
1: makes me think of uh, Robert Paxton and uh, the way Uh he led the way in terms of Vichy studies. Yeah, exactly. Um, Did did North American um, or anglophone um, scholars of French women's history sort of lead the way with Francophone scholars following? I'm probably setting myself up for all sorts of attack there, but but I mean, did was was it a a Paxtonization of um, uh, the field?
2: Well, in a sense, yes, except for the fact that the the French scholars were not necessarily reading the Anglophone scholars until (laughs) later. Uh, Michelle Perrault was really instrumental in introducing women's history in France as part of her seminar. And uh, once a month among four topics, women's history was one of them. And so she was slowly working and she developed a coterie of younger scholars 10 to 15 years younger than me. And, um, and we began, the Americans began, and British began attending that seminar. There were some of the Anglophone scholars who were actually living in France at that point. I, I was not, I was sort of going back and forth. But eventually, it took root, and there was enough of a critical mass that you could really begin to see the development. And that second generation was led by people like Francoise Thébault and uh, Florence Rochefort and uh, Eliane Villeneuve, uh, Michel rieu Mostly Paris-centered, except for one outlying post, and that was in Aix-en-Provence. And Yvonne Kniby there was, was also working this turf and developing a sort of Southern French uh, coterie of scholars who were working on these things.
1: Excellent. So so what did you want your two books, these two volumes? I mean, it was originally going to be one volume, but these two volumes, what what did you want them to contribute to the field?
2: A reorientation of the field. Go on. <laughs> <laughs> Quite simply, I thought that, you know, since since the relation between the sexes is so central to any society, and certainly central to French society, that it is entirely appropriate to focus on that as a major theme in in historical research. I mean, it sounds, you know, simple-minded now, but at the time, you know, that was not what history was about.
1: Right, right. When these things are so seemingly so obvious to a scholar like you, but just don't exist in the field, um, it's <laughs> it does call for a reorientation. Um, and so, what what kind of sources do you use uh, for for your work and and how would you categorize um, the books or or your methodology?
2: Uh, well, my these two books in particular, but also most of my earlier work is based in printed sources, published sources. <clears throat> and that is partly due to the fact that it's easier to work in published sources for non-French scholars. But it's also, if you're looking at a, a public debate on an issue, and in this case, it's the woman question, That's those are the sources that's where the debate is taking place, is in the printed printed matter, public public domain. And with regard to methodology, uh, I wouldn't characterize it one way or the other, except to say is finding as much material as you can, and then trying to understand both sides of the debate, or if there are several more than two sides three or four sides and seeing how that debate de- de- develops over time within the public domain uh, it's pretty simple
0: yeah
2: <laughs> and it it, it actually and it, when, that's you're, another when point. you're when you're in the beginning of a field that's what you do <laughs>
1: <laughs> right, right. But that, that's another point that makes me think of, um, you know, again, my little corner of French history in in, in the colonial sphere. And um, Anne Stoller and others have, um, you know, persuasively argued that, you know, archiving is a political act. And there's all sorts of important questions that just don't get put into the colonial archive. So do you find that in in? maybe a more conventional archival approach um, was just not as fruitful for addressing um, the woman question as you phrase it, are the, uh, is is maybe the discussion or the, the historical artifacts more robust in the printed record in public debates and so forth?
2: I think it's more robust in the public debate. And you can, uh, Anne-Marie Solmuth in France has done a lot of interesting archival work on, you know, family court cases and things like that. But that's, in a way, that's a different piece of the field. And what I'm interested in is this broader picture of, you know, how people are talking about things and ultimately during the Third Republic, how they go about taking action.
1: Right, and right. That, those, is those all, big public- that
2: is all public record.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, when when they start to take action, but those those debates don't necessarily make their way into the archive. Not um, necessarily.
2: Although yeah, you can find yeah. some traces of them, but on the whole, no, they don't.
1: Yeah. And no, it's, because again, the archives stri- are stri- sent
2: them differently.
1: Yeah. Strange parallels because the, the colonial archives, you know, they, they don't record a lot of the debates going on about the nature of colonialism in Hanoi or Dakar. It may be happening in the paper, Uh but the colonial archivist doesn't want to put that in the archives at the time, right? They want to, uh, collect a record that is more. It's not um,
2: even that they don't want to. I think it's just not what they do.
1: Don't, don't even think of it. Right.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah, exactly. So, um, Debating the Woman Question in France, or excuse me, in debating the Woman Question in the French Third Republic, eighteen seventy to nineteen twenty, has the companion volume, uh, the Woman Question in France, fourteen hundred to eighteen seventy. The first volume covers almost five centuries and two hundred fifty pages, and the second covers fifty years and six hundred pages. Um, w- but you, in, you know, in these really comprehensive and 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 works. I mean, it's a very, very lively and engaging read. And you're a very generous author in giving us guidelines and posts and identifying important themes that you're going to be covering. So what were the, um, the key themes in the first book? I think you list um, five key themes that you characterize as reconnaissance in the, um, the woman question in France, 1400 to 1870.
2: Well, there are five things, but those emerged from really all the research that was done both on the Third Republic period and as I moved backwards, which was really due to the, you know, one day waking up and realizing that this did not begin, this debate did not begin with the Third Republic, for goodness sake, and you cannot truncate it from the rest. So as I worked my way back, all the way to Christine de Pizan, through you know much scholarship done by other people and identifying these sources and rereading them and looking at these debates again, then I came up with these five things that seem to be particular to the, the French culture with regard to this question. And I can tell you what they are, but I'll have to put my glasses on. Yeah. Um, Let's see, I have them all. Okay, the first one of these five factors was that I was amazed by the importance of the debates, in the debates, about uh, acknowledging the influence and power of women in France. And it, it comes out all the time. it comes out from the right, it comes out from the left, it comes out from the Catholics, it comes out from the, the secular people. and that goes way back. The second thing though is that in part perhaps because of precisely because of that, women were denied authority. And I make a, a distinction there between influence and power on the one hand, which are more informal and actual authority holding a position where you can make the decisions about the society. And that was denied to women right from the, the top of the monarchy down. Uh, then there were several other factors that, that popped out too, and I will get to those, I think, in a short period. But those are the two major ones, and those are the two, the first two chapters in the, the early volume. Right, so having
1: having power and influence, yet being denied a formal, recognized position. Um, and so, you know, I you say some very interesting things in the books about the chronological framing, um, and I was wondering if you could speak to that. Um, both books break with some of the familiar conventions in French history, uh, conventions that you know, non-France specialist would be familiar with. Um, you know, for example, the first does not take 1789 as a breaking point. Uh, and the second does not end in 1914 when so many books on, um, dealing with the uh, third Republic end. Um, so how does your analysis of the woman question cross these conventional political boundaries and, and what, why did you cross those, those nice lines in the historical record?
0: Um,
2: I'm a fairly unorthodox historian, as is probably obvious. And for me, those 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 ruptures, which is what the French call them, yes, they are important, but they are not the the main story. The main story is the, is the traverse and the way those the debates develop across those ruptures. And for example, the French Revolution really makes explicit uh, the political aspects of the women question when they are talking about, you know, enfranchising the men but not the women, when they are talking about reconstructing the family, when they are talking about all sorts of things about pulling the society apart and putting it back together again. All of these have to do with the relations between men and women, every single one of them. And in in that case, the other thing that happens with the French Revolution is the debate quickly runs outside of France, all over Europe, all over Europe. The Americans are paying attention. The British are paying attention. The Scandinavians are paying attention. The Poles are paying attention. The Czechs are paying attention. The Italians, the Greeks, blah, 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 on and on. So, And I write about that at greater length in my book on the, the European feminisms. I mean, about that, that interesting spread and circulation of the debates and the ideas. Um, having said that, I should also point out that in this book, this is not necessarily a a hexagonal book. It's not about France as such. I have many participants in these debates who are living in Belgium, who are living in the western part of Switzerland. Sometimes they're living in Russia or Poland and they're all speaking French. And they are participating in the same discussions. So. It's fluid in in the sense of national boundaries. At the same time, it's very much shows the the importance, the European importance of French culture.
1: Right, right. And um, I mean, I, I did appreciate the way in which um, you know cr- crossing over that that rupture of 1789 sort of underlies the fact that well, it. The French Revolution wasn't a dramatic change for the position of women. It didn't, you know, it, it was it was not a definitive moment in debates on the women question. That many many things like just continued on through this this rupture, this uh, dramatic political transition, and continues to do that over the course of the nineteenth century. You know, well, from a political,
2: and it, it, it also it also. stimulates a a counter-revolution which is incarnated in the french civil code and its laws on marriage which are essentially worse than things were before but another piece of that you know there are there are definite portions and one of the most interesting is during the debates on the the family in 1791-92, single women are given full authority to do anything. They are taken out from the guardianship of their fathers and husbands. So single women have it really, really good. It's the married women who are subject to all these oppressive laws in France. And this is one thing that, that, became very, very apparent uh, as I was working through these debates. It's not women in general who are being discriminated against. It is married women in particular. On the theory that the family has to be organized in a certain way with a male authority in charge. And that's explicit. Is
1: that that more class-specific? I mean, is it for... More for property classes, or is it throughout the class spectrum?
2: Uh, it's more manifest in the property classes, but it's throughout the culture.
1: Right, right. More at stake with more property, right? Exactly. <laughs> okay. So um, uh, moving into the the second volume, what um, what does your gendered reading of the Third Republic um, tell us about the Fr- this French regime?
2: Well, the reason the Third Republic becomes important is that suddenly there is a regime, which becomes dominantly republican, which is, and the, the leaders are attempting to democratize French society, which means that questions like the women question come up for legislative action in a very interesting way, and there are proponents of, you know, everything from You know, married women's property rights to women's um, having the vote or not, uh, mostly not. Um, Men in French society were enfranchised, all of them, in 1848. And that carried over into the, the Third Republic with some interruptions during the Second Empire. But once the Third Republic comes into existence, there's immediately a question and a debate in the legislature about enfranchising women. And the answer is oh my God, what have we done? We are having trouble enough with all these men. What if we dilute that even more by women who are in, a, you know, physically a majority in the country? And that Haunts the debates on suffrage for, you know, 75 years.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com/slash system.
1: Right. And and also the I mean the Third Republic is such an important uh, symbol um, for progressive politics in Europe and the world at the time. I mean it's it is a the only major republic in Western uh, Western Europe or in, in Europe as a whole. Precisely. And, so um,
2: everybody's watching. Right. And seeing right. what the French are doing,
1: right? So how they're, I mean, it's, how
2: they're handling these these uh, developments.
1: Yeah, without being too Franco-centric, I mean, it's it's it is one of these examples where France does have an outside influence, oversized influence on the world. Um, you know, so many eyes look to look to Paris, look to France.
2: Yeah, in every possible field. I mean, it's politics, it's fashion, it's art, it's you know, you name it. They are the the outstanding example or beacon or whatever it is. That's partly what is so fascinating about late nineteenth century France, or actually nineteenth century France in general, and that all these these is social socio political issues are being rethought in the wake of the French Revolution.
1: Yeah, I, I had an interesting discussion with uh, Terry Burke, who was uh, one of my professors at UC Santa Cruz. Um, I, was, I had lunch with him recently, and um, he, he was sort of pondering the, the world history question about, you know, Britain in the 19th century is so powerful because of its empire and controlling so much capital. But so much of the world looks not to London, but to Paris. So while the, the real, the real power flows out of the city in London, much of the soft power in the world is flowing out of, uh, flowing out of Paris.
2: Mm-hmm. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. So, so tell us a bit about the structure of debating the woman question in the French third Republic It's divided into four parts, which you, uh, describe with the metaphor of a human sexual encounter. Um, why did you organize the book in this manner?
2: To be provocative. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I wonder people so, so, think of, of history in terms of essential like, human relationships.
1: So, so. Well, let, let's let's go through each section here, then. So, in, in keeping in mind that this is a a very sensual metaphor, which uh, excuse the the cliche, but is is very French, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> solid cliche on that one. So, uh, part one is familiarization, uh, romance with the Republic, eighteen seventy to eighteen eighty nine. Um, what do you argue about this phase of uh, French history? These these first uh, two decades of the Third Republic.
2: Well, it's, it's tentative. And part of the reason why it's tentative, but there's all sorts of looking around and familiarization, is in part because the republic is still fairly unstable. So, you know, nothing much is going to get done, but a lot of things are going to get discussed. And so if off. I could push
1: the metaphor... It's maybe it's maybe a period of flirtation.
2: Flirtation, yeah. Well, <laughs> flirtation is
1: part
2: of it. It's also yeah. cruising. Wait, so,
1: <laughs> <laughs> cruising, okay, fair enough. Um, um, and then the part two uh, encounter: uh, the Third Republic uh, faces feminist claims. So this is looking at the eighteen nineties, um, and what what happens in this decade? Maybe you could you can pick out a few key key moments.
2: Um, at that point, we are celebrating the first anniversary of the French Revolution, uh, which raises many many of the questions about the relations between the sexes and the family. Uh, the Republicans are, are now in a majority in the legislature, so it looks like things might really be possible to happen. And by that time, the... the Feminist side of the debate is really beginning to to blossom and take on all sorts of interesting questions and shapes and forms. So the and they're and they're courting um, legislators. They want action in the legislature to change the civil code on marriage, for example, to do something about women's adverse economic situation to address the uh, education of women and you know if you have a national education system and the decisions are being made at the top which is very different from where we live uh, where do you go you go to the the chamber of deputies and you start making trouble there yeah, so get, get the ear
1: of Jules Ferry. This,
2: one of the beauties of the French system is it's easier to study than, let's say, Federalist America, because there are not fifty different centers of of um, action as we you know see. For example, now with Roe v. Wade, this decision has been thrown back to the states, and each state can do its. Uh, take action in its own way, depending on who the electors are in the state. That's not how it is in France. And that's one of the things that makes France so interesting is that every big decision happens at the top, especially in terms of these kinds of questions.
1: Yeah, and that's that's so central to the French Republican mission, this centralization and universalization. That um, you know, gone is the old regime of you know a couple dozen systems of weights and measurements of various um, assemblies in different areas and various feudal arrangements, and and it's now scientific and universal. And there'll be a, there'll be a metric system that is uniform throughout the country. Um, and, You know. I think you raise a couple of really important points for um, uh, scholars who are not necessarily uh, specialists in France is that the third Republic is very shaky for those first couple of decades. And the Republicans are not uh, in the majority until this decade. And once the Republicans are in the majority, many people in France are recognizing the government as a vehicle for further social change as a, institutionalized system for a progressive society so yes the feminists will place uh, uh claims before the french uh, republic and and see the government as a way of instituting change correct?
2: exactly exactly yeah the mm. the change will come from the state and so you get very involved with the state
1: <laughs> exactly exactly um but and, and also is it in this decade that um even the term feminism is coined in France, correct?
2: That's when the ter- term is coined, actually. It's around earlier, but it's Hubertine Claire who was the major proponent of women's suffrage, who really launched it in 1882. And from there, it uh, develops, takes off. It, and in, in the 1890s, the press picks it up and... It goes in all sorts of directions from there, including, you know, to Spain, to Argentina, to I- Italy, to England. Even they they talk about feminism as a foreign import there, but they talk about it, and people pick up on the terminology. The Germans right. don't right. like it much.
1: <laughs>
2: oh yeah, <laughs> because at that point they don't like much that's French. <laughs> so they try to talk about, you know, the the, the women's movement, and they use that terminology. Oh,
1: to <laughs> eschew the <laughs> uh, the French
2: terminology. feminism. So there's there's you know, international repercussions and uh, controversy around this term, but it it really sticks from then on. and then people start interpreting it in their own way.
1: So that so that decade of the 1890s, which is part two, has that um, alignment with the um, the the republic being fo- finally on solid ground, having a republic majority, but also having this self conscious feminist movement that is now recognizing, as with others, that the government is a vehicle for change and pressing the case. So that That's leads very us to. Put. <laughs> Well, thank you. <laughs> um, that, you. You gave me good material to summarize. Um, so that leads to part three, which is climax: mainstreaming the women's question from 1901 to 1914. So this is the sort of moment where something's going to happen, right? This is mm-hmm. this is the climax. So what what were the crucial moments in the in the Belle Époque?
2: Well, one of the crucial moments was the change in the association laws in 1901, which meant that the women could organize. The, all sorts of, you know, causes could organize, and that's when you you find the organization of the National Council of French Women, the Conseil National des Femmes Françaises. You find other organizations, who which whose proponents decide to work on particular. Uh, elements of the the woman question and this is true through the society there's a flurry of association uh, organization at that point and that leads to more action that leads to immense debates the reason why that third republic volume is so fat is because there's many debates going on and the expansion in the printed literature is just incredible as you can see from the footnotes and we're not done with that yet we're still finding very interesting texts and debates um particularly in the in the press which you can now study much more easily because of gallica
1: yeah i was going to say earlier that um i did not have project
2: when i was writing the book
1: yeah, I know. I know. I mean, I, I, I look at it now and think about all the things that I had to track down in, you know, odd little libraries in Southern France or Vietnam. And, and now it's all centralized online. Yeah. Um, although that takes away a lot of the the glamour of being a historian, you know, the traveling the world <laughs> to uh, Traveling the world to sit quietly in, in people's libraries.
2: <laughs> <laughs> On the other hand, right. I mean, it was a godsend. For example, even after the books were published, I was still looking things up. And during COVID, when you couldn't yeah. go to the Vienna yeah. or even to Stanford Library, I uh, was still able to to find a lot of material between Google and Gallica. Oh, my goodness. There's more and more yeah.
1: These, these, these kids in grad school have it so easy nowadays. Let me tell you, um, if, it, <laughs> if, if we had had that then, <laughs> yeah. um, okay. So the, the next section, uh, part four is anticlimax: the great war and its aftermath. And, um, you know, importantly here, you continue the discussion through the war. You don't take 1914 as the stopping point. It continues through the war and doesn't stop at 1918. You take us into the early 1920s. Um, so what what did France's existential conflict w- with Germany mean for the historic development of the woman question?
2: Well, what it means is the woman question gets put to the side. I mean, it, all sorts of All the action that began to expand after the association laws comes to a grinding halt once the war is declared, like super fast. And all the feminist organizations, for example, throw themselves into, you know, helping the war wounded and helping to identify missing soldiers and reunite them with their families and feeding poor people and, you know, philanthropic efforts of all kinds and they're not, essentially politics as such is, and the politics of the sexes is just marginalized, put on the shelf. And it only begins to really break through again in terms of the public discussions in 1916-17 at which point people begin to, to figure the war might actually end at some point and they need to plan for the future.
1: Right. Right. And, you know, so when, when, when I teach, um, 20th century world history, I I don't get to teach any French history classes, but when I teach 20th century world, one of the things that, um, my students find so perplexing is that, um, um, in the wake of world war one, um, Suffrage is extended in England, in the United States, and it makes it through the chamber, but is blocked by the Senate. Could you could you say a few words on that? Because that's really sort of the the end moment for your narrative here as it, as it goes on from 1918 into what? Is it 20? Is it they, they, they sort of dither until 22 or
2: 23? 22 roughly of the yeah. uh, abortion laws, anti-abortion yeah. laws, that sort of thing. Um. Yeah, uh, let's see. What can one say about that in a few words? Um, they can. The French came very close, but then there was an election, and that's when the, the Chambre de Bleu Horizon came in. That was when the Senate uh, was reconfigured, and there was a lot of essentially counter-revolutionary types who who were elected to the Senate who simply could not deal with the idea of enfranchising women, particularly because due to the war losses, adult women really did outnumber adult men, and they were afraid. They were afraid, and it shows up in the literature. So they there's were,
1: that, that demographic uh, the reality. The demographic that
2: consequences yeah. of the war essentially yeah. killed women's suffrage.
1: In in a way that does, do, that those demographics aren't as stark for England and definitely not for the United States.
2: Right. Certainly not for the yeah. United States. I mean, the United States only came into it fairly right. late in 1917. We talk a lot about the Doughboys, but you know that it was clear that the U.S. effort helped the French to turn the tide. That they did, but and the French were counting on that. They're just saying, "Come on, come on, get over here sooner." But the um, the demographics are horrible.
1: Right. Yeah. No, that, um, that's, it, it's so fascinating. And again, my, my students are just so stunned at that, the failure of, um, suffrage to, uh, pass at that moment. And then are, you know, just flabbergasted that it's not until 1944, so much later than the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, But it's not so yeah. much
2: later. Yeah. It's only 20 years later. <laughs> well, <laughs> you know that's what's but, interesting yeah.
1: yeah but 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 for for you know a a country and a political system so associated with all of these progressive values that it's it's that french paradox and that my my students just really
2: mm-hmm. wrestle
1: with that um you know the the third republic is such an outlier and so progressive in so many ways except for on gender issues, except for on um, uh, uh, women's suffrage and and and, and well, women's suffrage,
2: in, the reform of the civil code, right? Uh, the economic things have it did start to change rather fast after the Second World War, in part because it had to. Um, you know that there are family allowances are already in place, um, but a number of other things happened, but. Yeah, I think you know, people probably don't understand how delicate the economic situation was in France after World War One. I. Mm-hmm. I mean mm-hmm. when you're reading the, the the press and the newspapers, it really starts to sink in that you know, France was in a very perilous situation in those years. And organizations fail because no one can afford to pay the membership dues. Uh, Things like that start to happen, and then for the women in particular who don't have the economic power that the men do, that some of their organizational efforts are the first to go.
1: Yeah. And, you know, that's one of the things I really appreciated about your writing and the way the book's constructed is you're not looking at these things in hindsight. You really are presenting these debates as the lived experience. These historical actors don't know what's going to come. So you really get this sense of being sort of in the, well, I guess, in the trenches is an inappropriate in metaphor for tr- talking about well, over tr- one, but, but on, the tr-
2: on the ground, like you, you really, the- really feel it. It yeah, is and they, they down, don't, and that's deliberate. Yeah. I think that's yeah. how history should be written and taught. I really, yeah,
1: do. and it, it it avoids these sort of teleological conclusions, and we we know what's going to happen. But let's right. let's step back and you know do this well, active historical. I see it from empathy. the
2: perspective of the participants and their their hopes, their fears, how far they think they can go, in asking for what they want, what the opposition looks like. All that I learned from working on (laughs) Casagnac.
1: Okay, excellent. (laughs) Well, well, that is fantastic. You know, you've been really generous with your time, but I've got two more questions before I let you go. Uh, First, can you recommend two books for the audience?
2: Well, I think you've just been talking about them. I'm going to recommend my own (laughs) books and be... (laughs) Heartless about it. I, I think they they deserve to be read more widely than they probably are being read now. I would add to that will, the European Feminisms book, mm-hmm. which came out in two thousand.
1: Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Which is yeah, I, I don't I, I know if have co- had a chance that. to
2: to grapple with that one, but it I think it's probably even more important. Than than the two French books simply because of the range and scope of the, of the uh, presentation, and it's been mm-hmm. just coming Absolutely. out in Chinese, by the way.
1: Yeah, I, so how how many languages has that been translated into?
2: Uh, well, it's available in French. It's available there uh, in Serbo-Croatian. It's available in Spanish and now Chinese.
1: Fantastic. That's great. Um, and uh, finally, what are you working on now? And what can we hope to see from you next?
2: <laughs> I'm working on my <laughs> organizing my archives.
1: <laughs> yeah.
2: But I do have a couple of things going on. Let's see. What, what did I write down here to, to tell you? Uh, the, uh, the women question books, are the first volume is being translated into French as we speak. So I'm working with my translator on that. Translator's very good, by the way. And uh, the Chinese translation, which of course I couldn't work on, particularly with the translator, but I fed them things like the the footnotes so they could translate those more easily than than having to retype all that, that material that probably will remain in English. And uh, I'm just getting my life organized.
1: Okay. <laughs> aren't, aren't we all? <laughs>
2: yeah, well, I mean, I know that you have many issues with family issues, and I have family issues, and those are very important. I lost my husband f- four years ago, so I've taken over not only all the things that I was doing, but all the the work that he was doing for, for the two of us, and for the, the children and the grandchildren and so forth. So I've had my plate full, really, ever since the two Women Question volumes appeared.
1: Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm delighted that uh, they're being translated and your earlier work's are uh, going to be in Chinese and reach an even wider audience. Um, I think that is a fantastic contribution to, for scholars around the world.
2: Well, thank you very so, um, much,
1: yeah. um, uh, Dr. Karen and thank you so much for chatting with me today.
2: Oh, it's been my pleasure. Yeah.
1: So always, this has been a conversation
2: to, to oh. talk with with scholars like yourself and to, to share these ideas. And there's been something of a dearth of that during the COVID period because we didn't have the conferences we usually have. So right. this has been. Although real it's been pleasure. a
1: boom, it's been a boom for podcasts. Yeah, <laughs> podcasting has gone up dramatically thanks that's, to COVID. That's so. wonderful.
2: That's wonderful. And thank you for doing these podcasts. That's really a great contribution. Wow. It's, so it's my pleasure.
1: It. I get I get to read fascinating books and talk to uh, even more fascinating people like yourself. So it's my <laughs> pleasure is all mine. So this has been a conversation with Dr. Karen Offen about debating the woman question in the French Third Republic, 1870-1920 at with Cambridge University Press in 2018. I'm Michael Van of Sacramento State University and this has been an episode of New Books in History at Channel the New Books Network. Thank you for listening.